0: Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A
1: behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Today is episode number eight. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. This week, I am pleased to have Chef Brett Sawyer from the Plum Café and Kitchen in Cleveland, Ohio, as a guest. The Plum Café and Kitchen is a farm-to-table restaurant that has the interesting particularity to change very often the dishes on the menu. The restaurant is open since 2016, and in 2019, Chef Brett Sawyer is going to open a new place called Good Company. The chef will talk about the deep research phase that he is going into as part of his um, creative process and stay tuned to hear towards the end of uh, the episode, Chef Brett sharing a dirty secret about his favorite fast food item. Hi, Chef, and uh, welcome to uh, the show. I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Something that really intrigued me when, um, you know, we talked about having, uh, you know, the session is that you spent some time in Poillac in France, which is for the people that don't know where it is. It's the north of Bordeaux in France. And you went there learning about uh, dry curing ham and processing foie gras. So what happened? What uh, made you decide to, um, you know, to go to uh, France?
0: So, well, I was um, living in Akron, Ohio at the time, going to, school, going to college kind of aimlessly for something to do. I was about 26 years old and uh, really just wasn't into school. And I was looking for something else to do, to travel. And I found a job as an au pair in, in Poyac. So that's what I went there to do originally. And that's uh, that's what I did while I lived there. So nothing about cooking? <laughs> nothing at all. No, at the time, cooking was very much just a hobby for me. I was working in restaurants as my part-time job while going to school. But at the time, I was not cooking in restaurants. So moving to Poyac was, uh, was kind of a last-ditch effort to not have to go to college. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what happened there where, in fact, you went into learning this you know, trade about like, uh, drying and curing ham and processing foie gras?
0: Once I got there, you know, it was such a culture shock. You know, I'm, a, I'm from a small town in Northeast Ohio and uh, hadn't really been outside of the country very much at that point and very much just kind of moved there and threw myself into, you know, learning what I could about everything that I, I encountered. And uh, so it was the first time i had ever had foie gras or dry cured hams or anything of the sort. Uh, I didn't even know anything about it. So, you know, I just did what I could uh, and learned what I could while I was there about it. While still fulfilling my duties of taking
1: care of two very young, two and four-year-old boys. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and uh, is there anything that you have learned there that you are applying uh, today in um, you know in, at the restaurant?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's more of really more of what I learned there is just how to explore ideas behind food and learn history behind techniques and things like that. It's something that I use often. Uh, even down to the smallest thing. You know, when we put a, a dish on the menu, or when we put, when we're going through the creative process of coming up with dishes, I do a lot of research on the techniques that we're going to be using, or you know, the the type of dish. You know, we we have a very eclectic menu, so it's we get to kind of do what we want, and so I I love to do the research
1: behind it. Um, I and that all started very much when I was living in France. What made you decide to go into the restaurant business? You know, after then.
0: Well, I had been working in restaurants mostly on and off. Since I was at the, I was 26 when I went to France. I'd been working in restaurants since I was 20, mostly in front of the, well, all in front of the house. I was, I'd uh, waited tables for a long time and then bartended and then moving to France. When I came home, I went back to one of the restaurants I worked at and they were looking for a prep cook. I had been bartending there for a little bit. So I started as a prep cook there and then it just kind of snowballed. And, you know, but it was never in the beginning, it was something to do that because I was tired of bartending and then it just became, you know, something that I loved. It was never my intention to continue to work for people <laughs> for my entire life. So
1: opening my own restaurant was always the goal, no matter what. Okay, so uh, tell us about uh, Plum Cafe and Kitchen in Cleveland, then. The Plum opened, gosh, in May of 2016.
0: We, so we're just babies. We're not even quite three years yet. And you know, it's a group of friends, myself and my four business partners, who bought a building very naively, and um, spent a lot of time fixing that building up and uh, and building our restaurant and now we're in a place where our surrounding area is starting to build up more in our neighborhood. We get to do have fun with what we do and and do kind of what we want without having to answer to anybody which gives us a lot of creativity we just we just like to have fun at the plum we like to uh, we, we like to make sure that we use good products and and uh, for the most part and make sure that you know, we do things in our own way. So how would you describe the, the food that you serve there? I guess I would describe it as adventurous sometimes. But, you know, we use a lot of ingredients that people are used to. Or we use a lot of techniques. So we try to, to, make, to make dishes that are somewhat familiar without being too familiar. You know, we do we, a range of sizes of our plates. You know, a lot of people like to use the term small plates, but we like to make everything shareable if possible. So it ranges from small plates to medium plates to, you know, large format plates, such as whole fried chickens and
1: French bone in short ribs and things of that sort. But I mean, your menu is changing so often. So why have you made that decision, you know, to have that kind of approach? And it's almost that you never have like the same item on the menu. It's the frequency of, of switching from one dish to another is pretty impressive. So what was your philosophy behind it? Thank you for that. But, you know,
0: going in, I think a lot of the places I've worked in, in the past stuck very much to that kind of seasonal menu of there's four seasons and this is, you know, you get this for this season and this for this. And when I moved to Chicago and I started working in restaurants there, I it was the first time I'd really encountered that for the most part. And I understood it and I loved it. A lot of the places I've worked, they kind of repeat dishes in every season. Eventually, those things get a little boring for, I think, I mean, maybe the chefs, but for the cooks sometimes as well. You know, when you've made the same thing a hundred times and then it goes away for six or seven months and it comes back and you have to start making it again. It's great for the guests that they get to eat the same thing when they want, but for us in the kitchen, it can be a little boring sometimes. So, and I also learned, you know, after opening, after working with farmers and stuff like that, that, you know, the seasons aren't so cut and dry, right? You know, they're not. It's not really for growing seasons. It's very nuanced. And so I was excited when we opened the plum to be able to cook things a little more hyper seasonal, you know, with command over the the menu like I have. And with us printing our own menus, we can kind of change it whenever we feel like it, you know. So if we get, you know, I I can remember a couple of years ago or last year, last summer, broccoli, the early broccoli, uh, the beginning of the summer had a very short season. It was only like, gosh, I don't even think it made it two weeks before it got too hot for the broccoli. And we had this really great dish on and I, and and it went over very well. And 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 I liked it and everybody seemed to, to really like it. But it w- didn't even last two weeks on the menu because we were getting it from a farm and the farm stopped producing it and we couldn't get it from our other farms. And, and so it comes off until we can get it from them again. It's not that I don't love broccoli from the grocery store. Or from It just wasn't the same. So we try to stay hyper-seasonal and we You know, we try to keep it interesting for ourselves in the kitchen as well for for the guests. You know, I think the people have really kind of taken to our the idea that they can come in, you know, almost every other week and and have something that they didn't have the week before.
1: How do you deal with potential disappointed customers then that usually want to come back and eat their favorite dish? Well, we do have a couple
0: staples that have stayed on for a little longer than I would have ever liked, but you know, we do understand that. You have to you have to please customers sometimes, or the can't really run a restaurant without them. So we do do have a couple staples on there. Uh, Our chicken sandwich uh, has been on for quite a while now, and it will probably never go away. And and our our chicken skins, but for the most part, uh, you know, we would get people who would come back, and and they don't really get upset. You know, they they mention that they would love to have had it again, but hopefully there's something they usually find something on the menu. That they like just as much, so it's not been too much of an issue.
1: So this idea of changing the you know the menu very often in this very high frequency uh, for me leads into like two different questions one it's about your creative process and how do you keep it fresh, and the second one is, you know how do you handle those logistics of the ingredients and and so on so let's start with the first one in. Let's go into and trying to understand you what's your creative process.
0: So the creative process for us for as a plum, there's, there's a lot of different ways we handle it. You know, my personal one, we all we all read a lot of cookbooks. We have a lot of cookbooks laying around the restaurant in downtime. You know, obviously restaurants sometimes have slow time. We talk about dishes a lot. We we do a lot of bouncing ideas off of each other. And when I say each other. I'm talking about my my co chef. Well, my chef chef de cuisine, my co chef Vince, and you know all of our, our, our sous chef Chance, and all of our cooks Ali. We're not a huge staff, but everybody's very involved in the creative process a lot. I mean, there there on our current menu right now, there are dishes from at least four of us total on the team on the menu. You know, it's it's we have a lot of different inputs, which is great you know we have a, such a talented team right now that bouncing ideas off of each other is just like it's wonderful it comes from my personal creative process a lot comes from things that i've already eaten things from my past my memories of certain foods things that i love that sometimes i maybe don't like to admit certain fast food items and things of that sort i like to think about you know the flavor profiles of of stuff and and then i kind of you know my process is to to figure out Similar flavor profiles in those veins. So you know, there's no one way that we get from A to B or A to Z on a dish.
1: So, but where does it start for you? Does it start at uh, you know with a specific uh, produce or a specific flavor, a technique, um, a memory that you have? Sometimes it'll be
0: you know we know that a certain uh, certain piece of like like a certain piece of produce is coming into season, or our farmer will say, hey, we're going to have this you know soon. Or you know you see we see it on, on one of our farm lists. So it can start with the ingredient, but sometimes it can start with a dish. You know maybe I ate something somewhere. A good example I, I would say is I really enjoy going to Florida. I know not a lot of people can say that. I, my wife and I go probably once a year and a couple of times. In, you know in the northern part of Florida, the northern west part, in like the Tampa area, St. Petersburg. There's a lot of fish houses, and a lot of Florida has, uh, and their seafood houses have a smoked fish dip. It's very common, it's something I love. And so, you know, after visiting a couple times and eating that so many times, you know, it's something I really wanted to take on and do a version in our way. You know, it might it might start with something like that, where I just eat something, and you know, and I'm like, I get intrigued by it, uh, and I do a little research on on the dish and where it comes from and things like that, and then I try to figure out a way to make it our own and sometimes it just starts with an ingredient and then you know building the flavor profile around it and then figuring out what the vehicle for delivering that that ingredient to somebody's mouth is going to be
1: so so let's take an example from your current menu can you walk us through like the inspiration process behind the dish that you are called the bad and bougie chips and dip so at the time that we put this on, uh, we had
0: another, a much more reserved version of this dish. So we had, a, it was just a, we called it chips and dip and it was uh shiitake mushroom puffs or, or mushroom chips and a pickled ramp, like cream cheese dip. It went over very well. And it was kind of at the beginning of mushroom season here in Ohio, like for, you know, and we had a lot of people stopping in with, with chanterelles, I should say it was the beginning of chanterelle season. So we're getting all these people coming in with these beautiful local wild chanterelles, and we don't have anything, anything specific for them yet as far as like an idea for a dish. So but we're buying them any or you know, we're we're getting we're taking them anyway because we know that the season may not be very long. So we're sitting on pound, you know, twenty or thirty pounds of these chanterelles and we're trying to figure out how what to do with them. Them being a somewhat expensive ingredient, we decided we wanted to Preserve them, but not in a traditional way. So, what we did is we we turned them into the mushroom chip, them being so nice that we didn't want to sell them as our regular chips and dip. So, we kind of slowly just spitballed this idea of what if we made this very over the top? You know, I, I, our menu is very inexpensive, I feel like. And it's, you know, we very much try to make our dishes not only approachable, but affordable, you know, affordable for people to make them seem a little more approachable. And so we decided, what if we threw all of that out the window and just made this kind of over-the-top dish out of something that was all a very simple idea, you know, chips and dip, and and just really went really big with it. We talked to a, a purveyor of ours who we knew knew a lot about caviar. And we thought, gosh, if we could serve these with like a really nice ounce, full ounce of caviar, you know, it comes out in the dish on a little pad of ice and these beautiful chanterelle mushroom chips come out with it. We make a house-made creme fraiche, serve that. And then we, we took some black trumpet mushrooms that we had at the time and dehydrated them, mixed them into sea salt with some 24-karat gold gold leaf. And then at the, it just all kind of fell together, but it really worked. And then our, one of our purveyors had just brought us this really, really beautiful sparkling vermentino that just happened to be the most expensive bottle of wine we'd offered at that point on our wine list. So we thought, what if we took all of these things and put them together in one and charged what felt like to us a ridiculous price, but what we knew was actually a good deal. And so we charge $100 even for it. And you get a bottle of spir- sparkling Vermentino, you get a full ounce of golden Ossetra caviar, you know, a large amount of these Chanterelle mushroom chips tossed in, in black and gold salt, we call it. And then a little side of creme fraiche to kind of finish everything off. The, the wonderful thing about all of these things are we can have them preserved, you know, we fry the chips to order, so we can have them preserved, and they can sit, and they're not something we have to move quickly because they're going to go bad. so then we you know and so the the price tag of a hundred dollars was like, well, I mean, if we sell one you know one every week, you know we'll be
1: happy with it, and we sell them you know more frequently than we ever thought we would at this point. Yeah, I absolutely have to, uh, to come back to your restaurant and, and taste this. It gives like a really a different dimension to chanterelle that really speaks to my heart. It's, uh, one of the mushrooms that have a very important story, you know, in my life. I remember like, uh, foraging those mushrooms with my dad when I was a kid and uh, always had a, a very good taste, you know, for it. So I, I, I need, you know, to taste that dish. Sounds outstanding. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's, it's, We're
0: excited about. I mean, it it was. It's funny. We were probably selling about, I'd say, roughly one a week on average. Last week, we actually had somebody one table come in and order two.
1: So I've seen as well that a part of your inspiration is coming uh, when you are blending like different, you know, culture. So it seems that you are not afraid to take, you know, like different culture influences and and mash up sometimes some of like recipes. So I don't know if you can give us like an example. I remember like in um, a dish that I read uh, that you did some time ago, there was a barbecue lay trout that you serve with a kimchi fried rice. So, and that's interesting for me, this uh, position of the the barbecue, you know, uh, culture and then the Korean, you know, kimchi together. So... Yeah so I don't know if you have some some examples where you you a uh, created mashup between different cultural influence.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that that's what is fun for me. I we you know and and especially at the plum, you know we don't profess to serve any type of specific cuisine. Some people refer to it as as new american, but I think we just kind of at this point refer to it as american, you know, America being the melting pot that it is. All these cuisines, all these you know styles of food are everywhere at this point, if you look for them and you know so to me, it's not strange to mash these things up. I mean so many different cuisines use such similar ingredients, especially when it comes to spices and and herbs and things of that sort. Putting these things together, it just tends to make sense for me. you know I feel like it very much represents. What America is, which is you know a melting pot of people, so why shouldn't our cuisine reflect that so but yeah, I mean, I think the barbecue fish was a I honestly think that I ate barbecued fish at a at an Asian restaurant I was at at one point, some type of barbecued fish dish, and to me, it just was like, oh cool, like we could do this you know as a whole fish, you know instead of just a piece and again and then you know, I think we already had kimchi in house that we were making, and it just kind of all. Made sense in my head and, and it went over really well. We actually, I actually brought that back for a dinner I did uh, recently in New York because I, I, I missed that dish quite a bit. I thought it was one of my favorites we've had on. We try to always have a whole fish on, uh, at least for the spring and summer season when, when we can get them
1: out of the lake. You know, that, that one's, that's one of my favorite ones. So now let's talk about the um, the logistics, you know, behind the scene when you have to handle, you know, the complexity of uh, uh, the frequency of changing the the menu, like you do. So, can you walk us through the system that you have, the process that you have in place, uh, from a, a creative standpoint, from the, the quantity of ingredients that you have to handle, as well as probably training. You know, your staff, you know, to be able to talk about those dishes, you know, with the customers. Like I said earlier, I I do a lot of research
0: when I start creating a dish. You know, I do, I look into the ingredients. I look to see what is, you know, if I'm doing something that's maybe considered a a traditional dish in whatever, in, in a certain cuisine, I try to study to see what the traditional ingredients would be. It gives me a good idea of where to start, you know, and where to go from. But I, I relay that, you know, we do cue time or, or, you know, before service, anytime we have a, uh, and then anytime we have a new dish, you know, we we discuss it as a group. I go into very rigorous detail about how I came up with the dish, you know, where it comes from originally, if it is something that is a more traditional dish from a, a, a certain type of cuisine. You know, as I show the cooks who are going to be picking it up, how to pick it up, we talk about why we're picking it up that way. How I cook to this or braise that, you know, I just try to keep up with the details with everybody and you know make sure that everybody's aware and I also like to make it very clear to uh, especially our front of the house and everybody else that works in the kitchen that you know if you can't remember something or if you have a question or I, I forgot to cover something, please just ask you know i I'd much rather you know what you're discussing with somebody than 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 just kind of make something up, so we're very adamant about. Our staff knowing the details and knowing about each dish and where everything's coming from and where the inspiration's coming from and things like that.
1: So let's go behind um, a little bit behind the scene now. So you opened this uh, restaurant in 2016. You are going to open a, a, a new restaurant as well, a uh, good company. What are like the top three advices that you could give to someone who are looking to open a restaurant today? All right. Top three. Number one: Make sure you have enough money to open your restaurant. <laughs> yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> you know that's something we ran into with the plum. I said. I said in the earlier that we were very naive when we went into this, and it was, you know, we were all uh, starry eyed and whatnot, and uh, we just did not realize the type of money that we really needed to open a restaurant and have it be open smoothly. So, so what does that mean? Having enough money. You know, just make sure that you have a budget. Make sure that your budget that you stick to your budget. Make sure that you know that you have enough money in the beginning. You know, budget for opening costs as far as things that you may not think about, like labor and and things of that sort. And there's just there's just a lot of things that can get missed very easily in the beginning. And you know, especially when you're young and it's you know, you know, I, I did it with four people who had never re- opened a restaurant either, and so. We just went in somewhat blind. I feel like, and, and we've gotten very lucky. You know, I'll, and I'll say, I'll say my second thing is know who you're opening a restaurant with. Make sure it's somebody that you can be around and be with all the time. You know that you get along, that you can get along with, uh, that you can fight and make up easily. It's there's a lot that goes into it, and, and having the right people in your corner and on your side is a huge deal. For sure. So, and then I would say the third thing is don't be stubborn. You need to your business needs to work. You have, you go in with an idea and an ideal of exactly what you want your restaurant to be. You know you can stick to that, but your guests are going to tell you slowly what they want your restaurant to be, and you don't have to listen to every one of them, but you have to listen to some of them. You have to be willing to roll with the punches and to change a little bit here and there because you can stick to your ideals and your guns all you want, but if nobody's walking through that door, your ideals aren't going to get you very far. And, and, I, and I mean that in the way of like, we went in with a certain idea of how we wanted to serve our food with, with the way we wanted service to go. At some point, we realized it just wasn't working. So we addressed the situation, we figured it out, and we changed a little. And our service got better and people seemed happier. So you know we went in thinking we were going to be a little bit of everything for everybody. We were going to do retail and we were going to do coffee in the morning and we were going to have lunch. And now we are a dinner only restaurant, you know, that serves brunch on Saturdays because we realized that you know our area didn't need a lunch spot and that we were wasting our we were wasting time trying to push a menu that wasn't working. So you know you just have to be you have to be flexible. You have to be Ready to, you know, to make a change for the better of your business when opportunity presents itself. What are the other chefs that uh, do you look up to? Oh, gosh. You're going to make me sound like a fanboy, but that's okay. I have a lot of chefs from my past that I've worked with that are, I consider friends now. Matt Trost from Good Measure in Chicago was one of the first chefs who really showed me what it was like to be a cook and and to work in restaurants. Jonathan Sawyer from Greenhouse Tavern was my chef up until I opened The Plum. But I look at people, I have a good friend in in Miami, Michael Beltran, who owns a restaurant called Ariette and he is just killing it down there. His work ethic and his food and just everything he does is top-notch and he's just a good human being, close friend of mine. But people like Jeremy Fox and Justin Severino, Chilla Thackeray in Pittsburgh. Oh gosh. I mean, pretty much everybody I meet who is doing what we do. I feel like I now know what it takes at least a little bit to run a restaurant. And so anybody who's doing it and doing it successfully, I think, but also the people that are changing the way that we think about how kitchens are run and, uh, and the culture of, of restaurants, you know, we, We very much try to adhere to, you know, we don't yell in the kitchen. We don't put you down. We give you weekends off if you need it. We want you to have a life outside of our restaurant because we want to have a life outside of our restaurant. You know, I mean, it's there's so many chefs that I could name, and I know I'm just going off the top of my head. Can you achieve the work-life balance in having a restaurant? I think you can. I think if you have the right team and the right mindset, I think it's I think it's very possible. It takes a lot of work. I think it takes almost as much work as just you know throwing yourself into the restaurant all the time. You know, as the chef, you set the example, right? If you can be the beacon, if you can be the leader in that way, and you, everybody else who works with you will follow. So I, I think it's very possible. I think we're 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 doing a good job of it currently, but we're also
1: about to open a second restaurant, so we'll see <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> So, talk to us a little bit uh, about this new adventure. Good company, what will it be? It's a new concept completely.
0: We're going for a little more casual, a little more neighborhood hangout place. We're going to be doing burgers, fries. It's gonna be it's gonna be bar food, but bar food done our way. And we'll have a nice, you know, an equal amount of vegan and vegetarian options at the bar, as you know, as we will you're kind of average. So we'll do wings and we'll have monthly specials of I think larger plates such as uh, chicken marsala. So we'll do, it's going to be a little more playful, a little more everyday, I guess, is the is the term that we keep using for
1: uh-huh. the food.
0: And it will be in Cleveland as well. It will be in Cleveland, oh. yes. It's about, it's about five minutes drive from the plum. Uh, it's in a neighborhood called Battery Park and it's right by the lake, uh, right near Edgewater State Park, which is the kind of the beach on the lake. So we're very excited about it. It's We're going to be also producing all of our bread and pastries and things like that for both restaurants out of there. So we have this very talented pastry chef, Nolan Tidwell, that works with us now. We wanted to give him a place where he could kind of really express himself. So he's going to be doing all of our bread and, and buns and things like that for both restaurants. In house, and uh, same with pastries and ice cream, and, and we're really gonna we're gonna push a uh, a lot
1: for him moving forward. So, so what is the one piece of equipment in the kitchen that you cannot live without, and other than your knives?
0: Oh goodness, this is a tough one. I immediately kind of jumped to KitchenAid, but you know, I guess all that stuff I could do by hand. The Vita the Vita Prep is pretty pretty essential to most kitchens but so no
1: sous vide your, in your kitchen
0: Yeah no I mean it's you know we love it and we do use it we definitely enjoy a good circulator and we we use it quite a bit but I feel like the majority of things that you do in a circulator uh, a lot of them you can do in an oven or a pot you know it just takes a little more time but I I would say I mean gosh I mean a Vitamix is is essential it's kind of hard to make a puree without a good blender
1: So when it comes to um new ingredients and I'm sure there's a lot with you know the variety of menu and dishes that you have so what are the some of uh, the new ingredients and unknown flavors that uh, you have experimented with and have made their way into your menu recently
0: I know one thing that we really that we we love every year that we get and it was new one of our farmers brought it to us is um kale shoots what we call them so the just kind of a, the, like when the when the kale starts shooting up and the shoot at the top of the plant, it looks a lot like broccolini or, or uh, you know, it looks a lot like broccoli rabe, like for peony. I mean, it's very similar in look and texture, but it's much, much sweeter and much less bitter. That's something that we've been using for a couple of years that we love that we don't see a lot of people use. But also baby corn. I'd say baby corn is the one thing that makes it to our menu every year in one way, shape or form. It's whether, you know, it, it, it's, it's always a different technique of, of cooking it, but it's probably one of my, my favorite things that we get from our farmers every year. You know, it's not like a crazy ingredient when you think about it. I mean, you see it in a lot of Asian food, Asian American food and things like that, stir fries from Chinese restaurants and whatnot, but getting it fresh with the husk on. It's so tender, and, and the husk is very tender, and the silk is very tender, and you're able to really eat kind of the whole thing.
1: Any specific um, condiments or sauce that's um, you know that are um, interesting and intriguing, you know, to you? Right now, I'm insanely intrigued by Big Boy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, so the way that I address everything or attack everything food-wise by going into. You know into depth in doing research and and figuring you know when I do di- when I create dishes with the new restaurant, we're gonna have a, a burger on the menu, and I'm bound and determined to have this burger be the best burger in the city and so we've really gone on this kind of r and d into this r and d rabbit hole with burgers with hamburgers lately, and one of the best kind of fast food you know thin patty double burgers I've had in this whole thing is at big boy, which is a storied American kind of fast food chain that is nearly out of, I, I, there aren't very many left, I think uh, uh, less than a thousand across the country at this point, but there's only two in Northeast Ohio. And I, I go into these things doing as much research about burgers as I as I would about, you know, foie gras, where I could tell you, I mean, I could tell you almost verbatim the history of uh, the big boy burger. But there is a sauce that you can only get at the local Ohio Big Boys. And it is just this tangy mayonnaise relish kind of tartar sauce sauce that has special ingredients that I cannot pinpoint. I and mean, I'm pretty obsessed with it lately. Like I said, <laughs> I've had nothing but burgers on the mind for like the last few weeks. So I'm pretty, that's where I'm at right now. So,
1: oh, cool. Okay. That's um, something that, um, you know, I need to explore as well. I don't think I have, uh... Eaten at um, one of those uh, Big Boy um, locations, so I have to try that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, you must try Big Boy. It's it's uh, so far it's the best best fast food burger I've had in a long in, in in years. So
1: yeah, what a big contrast with the bad and bougie chips and dip. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very contrasted. <laughs> So, for a home cook like um, I am, so what would be your suggestion if you take this idea of apple? What suggestion would you give me to come up with an uh, interesting and creative dish or, you know, that I can give a, an unfamiliar twist, something based on apple? I think that people,
0: when they think of apples, they think of pie and desserts and things like that. They don't think of savory dishes all that often. So, I, I think that. I would suggest that you, you use it in something that maybe you would normally use potato in, or you know, add it to something like chili. Could give a very wonderful sweetness as well as a nice like texture to something like chili. Or add apples to your mashed potatoes. I think that's a, a something that people don't do enough of. Just throw you know, probably like three or four potatoes that you that you make for mashed potatoes. Just throw in one, cut an apple up, and throw it in there. You just add this really nice sweetness to it.
1: Okay, so we are at the end of our discussion here, chef. but I have a series of five rapid fire questions for you. Where do you eat or have a drink in Cleveland when you are off the clock?
0: Well, we tend to go to B&G Tavern, which is across the street from the Plum, a lot to have drinks after work. Food-wise, the Black Pig, Banter, Ushabu, Larder, A curated delicatessen, my friend Jeremy Umansky and Kenny Scott are just killing it over there with their version of of a traditional deli. Yeah. uh, Drinks, Spotted Owl, of course, beautiful cocktails, Porco Tiki Lounge for Tiki drinks. I mean, everybody loves a good fruity Tiki drink, right? Absolutely.
1: So give me three dishes that you would not live without cooking or eating.
0: I was just thinking about this the other day. Queso fundido is one of my all-time favorites. I think that. I would just have to have that for the rest of my life. So, you know, melted cheese and flour tortillas and chorizo. Dry cured hams are number one for me. I you know, I don't think I could ever live without eating prosciutto again or a nice country ham. That's some one of my favorite ingredients. Roast pork. My my mom's roast pork is uh well, and essentially is also my grandma's roast pork. You know, we get it at holidays and that's like the reason I look forward to Christmas is the roast pork. So
1: so you said you had a lot of uh, cookbooks, well so can you name two of your favorite?
0: My all-time favorite cookbook is The Joy of Cooking. I think that it is just a an essential book to have. It's so informative. There's plenty of background on all the in- ingredients and the recipes. It's in its gosh, I think it's in its like 75th or plus edition. So, you know, there's a reason they keep reprinting it and people keep buying it. And then Currently, I'll say that I, I couldn't say what my favorite is right now, but I can say that the last one I read, the last solid, co- like last cookbook I've read fully, I have a couple that I'm just still waiting to tap, but State Bird Provision was a very good, very solid book. I really, I really enjoyed a lot of the recipes and a lot of the background in that. I really enjoy re- cookbooks that, that have more than just recipes. I like to hear the story of, of the, the chef or the, or the restaurant that they're based around. I like to hear the stories of, you know, as anybody around certain ingredients or certain, certain, you know, recipes in, in, the, in the book. So I yeah, State Bird was, was really good. It was a gift from one of the cooks at the Plum and, uh, and, I, and I loved it, so.
1: So are you breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast?
0: <laughs> oh man, depends on the day, but I'm probably more dinner for breakfast. Wow. So what what do you do then? Mostly I don't eat anything, but when I do, it's usually later. So it's usually more of like a... Brunch type. Yeah, brunch time. So I love a lot of Mexican food for breakfast. I like to go get tacos. Although I do love... My wife makes the best egg sandwich in the world. So sometimes I get a nice surprise. I wake up and one of those is waiting for me. That's always my favorite breakfast. But most of the time I end up just eating an apple or a banana and drinking some coffee in the morning.
1: So you said that you know one of your um, you know pleasure is to um, taste like different fast food items. So what's your what's your favorite one? What's your favorite fast food you know product?
0: So the chili cheese burrito at Taco Bell, hands down, without a doubt, is the above all. Really? Yes.
1: <laughs> I would not have expected that.
0: <laughs> I'm not even quiet about it. I'm a very big advocate for Taco Bell. I actually just did an interview with a nice gentleman Ryan Joseph for a Thrillist article that he released about the chili cheese burrito. You know, he wrote a whole a whole article about this wonderful fast food item because it's very it's a very uh, Ohio thing apparently. I didn't know this but it's like a regional thing. Northeast Ohio, some of Michigan and Wisconsin is where you can get the chili cheese burrito, but you can't get one anywhere in New York or California or most of the south or southwest. I love chili cheese burritos, and that's my dirty secret.
1: Okay, chef. So, thank you very much for your time and being a guest. You know, at uh, on flavors unknown. I guess next time on in uh, the area, I have one to try the chili, uh, you know, burrito, and I have to try the big boy, you know, burger. We'll spend a day. I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you all the good stuff, Manuel. Yeah, And I have to come back to uh, Plum Cafe and Kitchen for this uh, wonderful bad and Bougie chips and dip that I have to try.
0: Yes, please do. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way, as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people.
0: You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.